Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The majority of my clients, they have an idea for a book and it's burning a hole in their brain and they need they need to see it happen. And they have either tried to write it themselves and just couldn't get through it, or they just have absolutely zero interest in being an author. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, what is up? Isaac, it's been ages. How are things going? Your book's been out for about a month now, right? What's been the biggest surprise about the way it's been received and what you've been asked to do to promote it? Well, what I've been asked to do to promote it is fairly straightforward. You know, if a podcast invite comes my way, if I, I say yes, if someone wants to do a virtual event, I mean, I just sort of say yes to everything, <laughs> you know. Um, so there's nothing I've been I haven't been asked to, like, do a dunk tank where people throw okay. things at a target to see too if I'll fall on the, you know, which is too yeah. bad. I feel yeah. like I would do well on the county fair circuit. But <laughs> the most gratifying surprise was getting an email from John Garfield's daughter. So oh. John Garfield is, you know, I I. I write a lot about him in the book. Mm -hmm. I sort of say that he's the first real method movie star. You know, he died very tragically and young and I spend a lot of real estate in the book on him. And so to have his daughter write me and say, you know, thank you for preserving my father's legacy and everything like that was, was very, very moving. So that that's been the most gratifying surprise was to have Julie Garfield write me. That's amazing. So whose voice was that, that we heard at the top of the show? So that was Michelle Schusterman. She's a writer, and I first became aware of her when she showed up in my YouTube feed. She publishes videos there twice a week about the writing process and writing craft and the publishing industry. But I wanted to talk to her for working because she does quite a lot of ghostwriting and IP work, which is a term that she defines early on in the interview. And the kind of books that she writes for other people aren't memoirs or policy tomes. They're works of fiction. June, I cannot tell you how excited I am about this interview because I've always had it on the list of jobs of people I wanted to interview, a ghostwriter. And so you you beat me to it. You scooped me. And I'm sure it's going to be great. I cannot wait. And our Slate Plus audience gets a little something extra in their stocking this week, right? <laughs> they do. Uh, I asked Michelle what it's like to be a freelance writer living in Dallas, uh, where she currently lives, rather than New York City, where she was until 2019. And the question I was most excited and most nervous about, which was I got to ask her about her first post-college job, which was as a high school band teacher mm. and how that influenced her writing career. And her answer, it was everything I hoped and dreamed of. <laughs> well, you don't want to miss that. And luckily, you don't have to miss that if you subscribe to Slate Plus. You get all sorts of other benefits. You, you get to hear June say great things. You get to hear uh, bonus episodes of Big Mood and Little Mood and How to Do It. Uh, you get access to everything behind the paywall. It's, it's really great. Go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up today. All right, that is enough out of me. Let's listen in on June's conversation with Michelle Schusterman. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Michelle Schusterman. I'm a middle grade and young adult author, and I'm also a ghostwriter. I've done a lot of IP, which is intellectual property work for traditional publishing houses like Penguin Random House and Scholastic. And I, in 2018, I branched out and began offering ghostwriting services to private clients. Before we go any further, uh, you mentioned IP work. Can you say a bit more about what that is? and how it's different from ghostwriting. Yes, so IP is intellectual property. And basically it means that the publisher holds the copyright. They, you know, it's their idea, it's not the author's idea. It can take a lot of different forms. Any, for example, all of the Star Wars novels out there, um, you might find, especially in the young adult world right now, a lot of really big YA authors are writing in, you know, Marvel worlds like Lee Bardugo and Marie Lu. So that's IP work. It can also just be there's, you know, a group of editors or even just one editor at a publisher who they have an idea for a book and they want to find the right author to write it. They might hold auditions or they might just know off the top of their head, like mm, this author, that's the style we're going for. Let's hire her. Interesting. I have so many questions we will be getting into. We'll, we'll mostly be focusing on your ghostwriting and IP work today, but I also want to begin by talking about your YouTube channel, of which oh. I am a very faithful viewer. Uh, oh. On that channel, you talk about your work as a writer, your work as a ghostwriter, about the publishing industry, and about craft, among lots of other things. You take questions from viewers. Before we get to everything else, tell me more about your channel. Your videos are very nicely produced. Um, they clearly take up a good chunk of your time to create. What keeps you motivated to work on that channel? I had been for years and years, I had been wanting to actually start a podcast, wow. <laughs> um, even though I know nothing about how to go about doing that. But the idea always appealed to me. And I mean, I'll just be honest, my husband is he watches YouTube for entertainment, which confession, I was not that person before I became a YouTuber. I just, I would like watch movie trailers and look up how-to videos and that was it. And he was like, you should start a YouTube channel. You should start a YouTube channel. And I finally listened. Yeah. And then the pandemic started and I had just started my channel. So it became my pandemic project. It became the thing that kept me sane. <laughs> I was still writing books and I was ghostwriting. Everything was going and chugging along then. But like, I think we all needed something that wasn't our work. Yeah. to focus yeah. on to keep ourselves from losing our mind. For some people, it was baking bread. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was learning how to edit videos in iMovie. <laughs> wow. And wow. so I just, yeah, I was, I hit it really hard from the beginning. I realized that not every video had to be scripted, that I yes. could just pick up the camera and talk through things I was working through in my day-to-day -day life as a writer. And that could also be interesting and helpful to people because as I started to become a person who watched YouTube for fun myself, I got most addicted to the vlogs. It wasn't the how-to videos and the instructional videos that I wanted so much as I just wanted a peek into somebody else's life, especially their life as a writer. Yeah. And so that's why, while I still do make the kind of like sit down scripted, let's talk about this issue kind of videos, primarily I just I focus on vlogs because I think there's just value in watching somebody else go through their career and their, manage their day-to-day -day issues. 
Yeah. So there are so many things that we could talk about. But as I mentioned before, I am fascinated by the work that you do as a ghostwriter. And I know that there are some restrictions on what you can talk about. You know, at some points you may have to say you can't go into detail. Totally respect that. But generally speaking, how does your ghostwriting work? I think there's two different sides to this. There's the kind of IP work and ghostwriting work that I do for traditional publishing houses, and there's the ghostwriting that I do for private clients. With the publishing houses, it it works really similarly to getting a book deal in general. There's a contract and, you know, I may get my name on the book. It might not be so ghostly, (laughs) but I (laughs) might not. And um, instead of getting paid an advance against royalties, I'm paid a flat fee. With my private clients, just the work that I do on my own, I usually use Readsy. Uh, that's readsy.com is a website where people can hire editors and just publishing professionals to work on their books. And so Readsy generates a contract between myself and the client and, you know, takes a percentage. And uh, it's been really great. I absolutely love Readsy. I've had nothing but a positive experience there. And once the client, they initially reach out and they kind of pitch me their idea. In a way, it makes me feel like I have a little bit of a sense of an idea of what it's like to be a literary agent because I feel like it's very similar to them getting query letters. They're pitching me the idea and they're trying to feel me out and say, does this sound like something maybe you would want to work on? And they might send me documents. Sometimes they've tried to write some of it themselves. They might have some world building ideas, some character development ideas. Just it could be a whole a whole slew of different things. They send mm. that to me, and I decide whether or not I think I am the right fit for it. Some genres, I'm just not. That's not my forte. And if it looks like something that would be a good match, I'll send them a quote. And I send the same quote. I have the same rate for everybody. You know, it doesn't change. I like to keep things fair. And if they decide to go for it, then you know we enter a collaboration together. It usually lasts two to three months. But before we get there, just to be clear, we're not talking about celebrity memoirs. We're not talking about, you know, policy uh, treatises. These are fiction writing projects, right? Now, what genres, you said you don't work in all genres, what genres do you work in? Primarily middle grade and young adult. That's where all of my publishing experience is. I have written some adult fiction for go in in the ghostwriting realm it's a little tough because that's where i can't talk about it that's where ndas are involved mm. and so i can't share those writing samples with potential clients to show them which makes it a little tough but i have done a little bit of adult fiction primarily though mostly what i get is middle grade fantasy that seems to be just my sweet spot that's where most people that's when you know what they bring to me i've done a lot of contemporary realistic fiction as well And um, I would say that, you know, oh, historical, I've done historical as well. So I'm not the person to come to. Definitely not memoir. That's just a whole other kind of ghostwriting, I think. I guess I'm curious what kind of people come to you, because, again, when I think of ghostwriting, my mind immediately goes to nonfiction. I'm thinking of celebrities. I'm thinking of people in public life who want to, you know, put their ideas out there or kind of apply for a job, really. Um, What kind of people want someone else to write their fiction books? I was curious about that too when I first (laughs) set out to do this. I was like, is anybody going to be interested in this? Um, A lot of people are interested in this. I would say the majority of my clients are, they either, they have an idea for a book and it's just, it's burning a hole in their brain and they need, they need to see it happen. And they have either tried to write it themselves and just couldn't get through it, didn't, or didn't want to do it, or they just have absolutely zero interest in being an author, or even like having any kind of career publishing many many books. They just have this one single idea, and they have to see that book out in the world. So that's why they come to me, and they love being, they are involved, very, very involved. It's not like they just kind of hand it over to me, and I take the reins. They, almost all of them are I mean, we message back and forth constantly throughout the process. We spend usually a solid month at least developing an outline, passing it back and forth. They give me feedback. They're like, can we work this in somewhere? And I I take all of their kind of desires and vision for the book, and I use what I know about storytelling to make it work in the story, to make sure there is still a satisfying character arc, to make sure the plot 
makes sense, <laughs> you know, to make sure the world is well developed. And we just pass it back and forth until we get this, this really good outline to work off of and they're happy with it. And then we proceed with the draft. So you've done all this, you've figured out the, this is what the story is going to be. That's all agreed upon. Do you literally write a ghost written or IP book in the same way that you do your own work? Like, do you use the same programs? Do you use the same whatever techniques you use to figure out beats, you know, whether that's corkboards or a computer program? Is the act of writing the same, whether it's for you or for a client? Yes and no, because the act of writing a book for just me on my books changes from book to book. <laughs> I've used probably Scrivener the longest as far as just a writing program. I've used the Save the Cat has software and I've used that. Sometimes I just work in a Word document. Everything's just in a couple different documents. Um, I recently experimented with writing a book by hand in a notebook. It changes from book to book because all story ideas come in different ways. And so you're starting in a different place. And so it requires a different process. And to go back one step, um, we, you talked earlier about the difference between ghost writing and IP work, IP work coming from a publisher. Is the initial kind of sketching out of the story, uh, does that tend to be different with IP? Because again, in my imagination, I think they probably come with like, okay, we want something with this set of characters. Um, is there as much collaboration as far as the story goes with those projects? It, sometimes, yes. I found that, okay, For just for one example, I ghost wrote a middle grade series uh, years ago for Penguin. And for the first book, they came at me with like a series Bible, <laughs> all the details thought out and a fully thought out plot. Like they just handed it to me and they said, write it. And then with book two, they kind of wanted my input on some things. And by book four, they literally just gave me the premise and said, go. <laughs> so it was a little bit more on me every time, which I like to think is maybe because I earned their trust <laughs> or maybe they just, I don't know, didn't want to put all the work they were doing <laughs> before to writing the outline. Who knows? So The former. Yes, <laughs> I hope so. Um, but I found that sometimes they do, they'd come at you and they have, you know, just a lot. They, they have everything they want the story to be and they just give it to you and they really are just looking for a draft. Most of the time, though, I would say with publishers, they spend some time looking for an author who's going to make the story their own. Most of the IP work I've done, I've had to audition for, and I think most houses do it that way. They will reach out to agents, get a group of writers that they think might be a good fit, and they will send them some material and ask them to write a few sample chapters, and then they'll judge that and figure out which version they like the best, which voice, which style. And they might also, I did one, for example, where they said, they were essentially like, here's the genre we want, and here's the characters and the vague premise. What would you do with this plot? And they wanted me to write a synopsis of like, here's how I see the story going. Um, so yeah, it's they, they do want to find an author who's going to kind of make it her own a little bit. And usually in those cases, it doesn't end up being ghostwriting. You get credited, you know, you get your mm -hmm. name on the book somewhere. <laughs> so... Let's go back to the the private client ghostwriter scenario. You've you know you've done the work to figure out okay this is what the story is this is how it's going to go. Do you check in with them as you're writing, or you just go back, you write it, you give it to them at the end? I try to feel out the client and how much communication they want. Most of them they want me to check in a lot, and I do. I'll you know touch base at least once a week and say, here's where I am. I wrote this scene today and it was so funny and, you know, etc. Some clients I found, they just, I've had, gosh, probably just only two or three that really just, once we get the outline developed, they just want to get the draft to me whenever and we're good. <laughs> they don't need to, you know, touch base regularly. But most of the time, yeah, I try to just, you know, give them a little something every week. I had so much fun writing this one part or, you know, this this happened in this scene and I thought you might like it, things like that. <laughs> wow. And then when you've finished, I mean, I, I presume you kind of agree on a word count. Yes. So once you've, you know, you've met your word count, you've got to the end of the story and you send it to them. Is it like 
with your own writing where you would probably have, you know, multiple revisions, multiple drafts, multiple sets of feedback. Do you have to do that too? Or you hand it off to them and that's the end of it? What I usually say is that I will give it one line edit pass after they read it. If they read it and they have some small changes they'd like me to make, I am happy to do that. But um, I have to, it's difficult because yes, like you said, I mean, every book, no matter how clean the first draft is, it's going to need a developmental edit. But that's also something where that's a next step for the client, hiring an editor, getting that feedback. And this has happened with many of the books I've worked on is we spend a lot of time on that outline so that there are no big picture issues because it's a lot easier to fix big picture stuff in an outline than in a draft. So the first draft that I, I give the client is very clean. And then they, you know, like I said, I'll do one kind of line level edit pass for them. And then if they choose to take it to an editor, get some big picture feedback and come back to me and hire me to do the revision. I've done that many times. And that's, that's honestly a lot of fun. It's always fun to jump back into a story that, you know, cause I've, I've been very fortunate in that I've genuinely enjoyed all of the projects I've, I've written. So it's always fun. And it's fun to see the, the client's excitement as they get feedback and they really start to see the book shaping up to be what they wanted it to be. <laughs> we'll be back with more of June's conversation with Michelle Schusterman after this. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey listeners, you may have noticed that we have a new little bonus show every other week called Working Overtime. It's a shorter show, it's just with the hosts, and we're really focused on creative problems and advice, which is a long way of me leading up to say, we would like to hear from you. Would you please shoot us an email at working at slate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. Have guests you uh, would like to hear from? Give us a call. You have advice you need? Give us a call. You want to shout out your own creative triumphs? We would love to hear it. And hey, if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to June's conversation with Michelle Schusterman. One of the things that I'm conscious of is that this is freelance work. Freelance work often has a sort of unspoken psychological component where you're kind of managing expectations or you're maintaining your client's happiness so that they'll keep working with you or that they'll keep folk. You know, I've, I've taught you have to keep them happy. If they get dispirited, they're going to give up. You know, it, that's kind of psychological management of your client. But I imagine that in this particular job, that management often takes the form of trying to manage their expectations. Um, I know from watching one of your videos recently that sometimes people think, oh, I'm telling you, this is going to be a bestseller. How do you handle that? Well, if I'm being honest, if I get a request from someone who is who says something like that, and it's clear to me that the kind of narcissism and ego is off the charts, I'm probably not going to make an offer to begin with. But that's not to say that I, I try to keep it balanced because I do think it's it's wonderful to have high expectations for your book too. I definitely did when I started my career. Everybody daydreams about what could happen and there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's great to aim high. But um, yeah, there is a lot of managing expectations involved and I think there's an extra layer of it being tricky for a ghostwriter because I never want to sound defensive of my work. Like, you know, if I, for example, have a client who is starting to see reviews of her book come out and she gets one or two that aren't so good, I have to kind of help her understand it's okay. This is subjective. 
there is, you can't find a book on Goodreads that has a hundred percent, you know, positive five-star reviews. You know, look up any book that you love. I tell them to do this. Think of the greatest book you've ever read. Go look on Goodreads, filter the one-star reviews and look at people rant. You know, if I, and the kind of rule of thumb I go by is if like half of your reviews or more are criticizing one specific part of your story, then maybe we need to pay attention. And that's something we can improve upon in future books. That's my rule for my books. But generally speaking, man, stay off Goodreads, people. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're working with a private client, Michelle, and you make an agreement with them, do you then go out with this book after you have written it and kind of try to get a deal? Is that, you know, is it like being an author, uh, you know, going out with your own book, trying to sell it? How does it work with a client's book? The short answer is I have nothing to do with what they do next. I, I honestly would not be able to manage that at all. You know, that's a whole other job and effort in itself. They, I, my clients, I have both clients who self-publish. I have clients who are going to go seek literary agents after I write their book. I have clients who already have literary agents. And, um, in some cases I have, for example, I have a client who is in the middle of talking to an editor who is interested in their book, but wanted them to take it in a different direction that they were struggling with. And that is why they hired me. So, but they all, once I give them the draft, they go off and do what they will with it. And I do offer, especially with traditional publishing, I can offer them some advice and suggestions on literary agents, but I am not able to offer any kind of like personal connections. I get that a lot. I, I get the sense from some requests that I get that people think, oh, she's published by all these big publishers. She'll be able to get me in. And I, I genuinely can't do that. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Yeah. And as far as, you know, we talked to, you know, one of the other things that people uh, kind of the, the, the general image of book deals is of, you know, auctions and contracts and, and, you know, negotiating over deals. When you're working with a ghostwriter client, do you have kind of a standard contract that you use or are you, you know, going back and forth about the, the points of the deal? I have only ever had one client who took the contract, went and had their attorney review it, added some stuff and came back to me. Totally fine. I have no problem with that. Other than that, I have a template. I make sure to include the thing they care about most, which is an NDA. They want to know that I will never use their idea or tell anyone about their idea. And I, so I make that part really thorough because I, I think that helps them feel reassured and comfortable in sharing all of this material with me. And like I said, when it's on Readsy, on that platform, Readsy generates the contract and it does include an NDA. So that's all taken care of. <laughs> Another one of the things that I, I just am wowed by as I watch your videos describing your writing life is the fact that you are working on multiple projects at a time. So currently, as I understand it, you're doing at least two ghostwriting projects. You're working on a novel of your own. You also have other client work. But how do you manage that in terms of your time management, but also um, in terms of just kind of keeping in the, the headspace of like, okay, I'm getting into client one. It's Monday, so it's client one day. It's Tuesday, so it's client two day. What are your secrets for managing that? One thing I learned, and this is something that you just said, is I, I can't work on multiple projects in one day. I need to give one thing my full focus on any single day. And, you know, I also need to build flexibility into my schedule because, you know, sometimes I'm going to have a day where let's say I'm balancing three client projects and one of them were in the brainstorming phase, one were in the outlining phase and one were in the draft phase. That's ideal for me because I, I like being at different points in the process with balancing multiple things at once, which is something I learned the hard way back when I got myself into a situation where I was drafting three books at once and it was just destroying me. <laughs> um, so if I wake up Monday and I look at my calendar and it's like, oh, today is outlining day for this client, but you know what? I'm just, I've got this other story in my head. So I'm switching Monday and Tuesday and I'm drafting this client today. I, I really do my best to keep that flexibility going so that if I just, I can't predict when I wake up what I'm going to really be feeling, 
But if I'm feeling a specific client project, then I want to put all that energy into that client's book that day. When you are writing ghostwriting projects or IP projects, how do you kind of, all of this is just me projecting what my emotions would be, but, you know, kind of not wanting to give the, you know, that fantastic turn of phrase, the, the, like keeping the really good stuff for yourself. Like, is that something that you ever think about? Is that just like mean old me, want, you know, being selfish? Is that something that you ever deal with? I don't think I've really, I'm trying to be really honest and look, <laughs> look inside myself for the answer here. I don't think I have ever quite felt that way because there is a, at the end of the day, no matter how much work I put into a book that I ghostwrite, and I do try to make it I put every bit as much effort into that book as I do my own books, for sure. But it's still ultimately not my characters, not my world, not my premise. It's the client's passion project. And I'm invested in it, but it's not mine. You know what I mean? So when it comes to things like just little turns of phrase, if I write something really good and I'm like, oh, that's a that's like a particularly good sentence, then it's almost just like, well, I'm glad I got that. I don't want to say practice in, but, oh, I improved. I just saw yeah. a little, like, up level in my prose. And ultimately, that is going to benefit my own books, too. <laughs> you know, that's that's really more how I look at it, I think. <laughs> wow. Um, so you, you don't kind of have a different style for the different projects. Um, you are all, you're not ventriloquizing your clients. You kind of commit to the project and to the story and the genre and you, you write in the same way, no matter whose name is going to be on the book or um, who came up with the idea? Generally, yes, but that's tricky because voice is like the trickiest, most elusive topic in writing, I think. And to be honest, for the first, I don't know, for most of my career, I actually had a lot of, I think a lot of my imposter syndrome came from me worrying that I did not have a voice as an author, because you know how there are some authors where you pick up a book and you read the first page and you're like, oh, it's that author. They sound, they just are very distinct. I never had that. But I, I've come to realize that a lot of authors don't have that. We're more like chameleons in that we write in, you know, we might write in different genres and the voice is going to be what it needs to be for that book. And I think that's a very useful skill to have, period. But if you're going to be a ghostwriter, it's particularly, you know, useful because I don't want my clients' books to sound like Michelle Schusterman books. I want it to sound like the kind of book that they imagined it to be. And a big part of what we'll talk about in the brainstorming phase is I'm going to ask them, tell me all the book titles that you would want this book to be compared to. What inspired you? What authors do you want it to sound like? And then if I'm not familiar with those books, I'm going to go read those books so I get a good sense of what it is they're trying to, to go for. And then I just do my best to find that voice for them. I'm very curious about how you do your own work in the middle of this. Um, because as you say, all books are different. You work on them in different, you know, they're sometimes even different genres. Um, what do you do? Do you just kind of be open to what each book that is a Michelle Schusterman book that's all from your head, that's going to have your name on it? Like, what's the difference there if you can kind of think of it that way? It's hard to say because I, last year, I kind of had a big shift in my career. I've been with the same literary agent since 2010 and she retired at the end of last year. And she, you know, I mean, obviously she sold all my books, but she's also the one who got me all of the IP work I did with publishers. And it was thanks to her that I even had the confidence to branch out as a ghostwriter to begin with. So I knew starting last summer that I was going to have to find a new literary agent and I was, I'll admit, I was struggling with my own books. I was putting all my energy into my ghostwriting and I kept attempting my own books and finishing some drafts, but I just, I was having a lot of uh, career kind of self-doubt. Like I felt like I'm not sure if, if I go on submission with anything anymore, I don't know if publishers want any books from me. I kind of, you know, I've, I was no. just having, I think all authors go through this. We, we all have down points and self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And so once I, I spent a few months 
not writing my own stuff, only focusing on ghostwriting. And then I started to think, you know, I had a lot of wonderful comments on my YouTube video about this saying, essentially saying, the last 10 years have been act one of your career, and now we are going into act two, which I love. And I remind myself of this on a daily basis. I think that's the healthiest way to look at it. And I thought, you know, as a reader, I have always been most obsessed with mysteries and psychological thrillers. That's the genre I read the most. So why not? If this is going to be act two, let's just shift gears and try something else that's entirely new. So I've been writing a mystery novel. It's not young adult or kid lit. It's, you know, for an adult audience. And I am planning on, you know, trying to find a new literary agent, hopefully sometime later this year. And just that excitement um, has really... It's it's nice to feel hopeful <laughs> mm-hmm. about about my career again because for a while there I was really struggling, just kind of feeling like I was sinking, you know. And now, as intimidating as querying is, and as intimidating as going on submission is, because there's so much rejection. I mean, you're guaranteed rejections. It's also been really exciting. It always feels like Christmas Eve. <laughs> like every, I remember when I was querying. It was just like, any second now, any second now, I might get an offer. Any second now. Same thing with submission. And I just, and the yeses, when you get them, make all the no's so worth it. Awesome. Awesome. Um, You clearly have a very extensive library of writing craft books. And I have a sense that maybe you turn to different books when you are kind of trying to figure out different problems. Um, So... Even knowing that, I'm wondering if there's one particular writing craft book that you return to over and over again that you are particularly uh, just as really helped you more than others. I think every writing craft book I've had will have has its own value and is good, you know, depending on what you're looking for. But the one I go back to the most, both as a writer and also a teacher, is called The Magic Words. And it's by Cheryl Klein, and it is it is specifically about middle grade and young adult books, although I think writers of adult fiction can also take a lot away from it. Cheryl Klein was an editor at Scholastic. Uh, she actually was the American editor on the Harry Potter series, amongst many, many other books. She knows what she's talking about. <laughs> and she the reason I find so much value in that book is because she illustrates all of her points using examples from books that she has edited, including like, for example, in the, in her chapter on point of view, she's talking about the difference between first person and third person. And she had a client who wrote an entire book in first person, and then they decided that it would work better in third person. So she side-by-sided these pages, and then they talked about why third person was the better choice for this particular story, things like that. And as a teacher, she also has um, a lot of just exercises, little activities you can do for all these different things. And I pull on that all the time. You've probably seen a lot of them in my writing workshop videos. I always try to credit her when I can, but I just, I love the exercises. So the, yeah, the magic words by Cheryl Klein, definitely highly recommend. <laughs> wow. I had not heard of that. Michelle Schusterman, thank you so much. It was great to be able to talk back to you uh, <laughs> instead of just watching you on my TV. Thank you so much for talking to us here on Working. Thank you so much, June. I love this podcast. I am just so beyond flattered that you watch my channel. Thank you so much. I really appreciate wow. it. This has been so fun. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market.
Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. June, I've always been so curious about the world of ghostwriting. In fact, when I went to go see the Chinati Foundation at Marfa, Texas, one of the other people on tour was a ghostwriter, and I just could not stop peppering her with questions. <laughs> she kind of had to tell me to leave her alone. Um, but, you know, it, it's a field I think a lot of our listeners are probably curious about, but What's interesting about it is it comes down to collaboration and project management. And Michelle had a lot of really great advice about both of those things. And those are difficult skill sets to learn. So first off, she said that it's a lot easier to fix big picture issues in an outline than in a draft, which I totally agree with. But it's also a good reminder that when you're collaborating on a creative endeavor, it's important to have something tangible to talk about, to get out of your head, out of the platonic realm it could be anything. Oh, what if it was this? And what if it was that? And then to actually just try something, just do something, have something real that you can respond to. Do you find that to be true yourself? Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, and it's funny when she said those words, I immediately thought of you because that's something that you've said at various points in the past, in past episodes. And because Michelle is collaborating with a client and her job is to make the best possible version of that person's ideas, it makes perfect sense. She has to spend a lot of time up front figuring out what the project really is. She has to know the characters and the setting and the conflicts and the resolution and the story beats before she sits down to type. But the truth is, it's much better for any kind of writer in any kind of situation to reach that kind of clarity before they get anywhere near a keyboard. And I believe all that. I do. But I can't say that it's something I've always or even usually done myself. Historically, I've had a lot of trouble committing to an outline before I know everything, like every last thing that is going to make it into the piece of writing. I always want to do all the research first. And I know that's not smart. I know that's inefficient. But I find it really hard to get over that. I have to say, though, that having seen a bunch of Michelle's videos, I know that when it comes to her own work, her own writing, she can be more of a pantser, you know, as opposed to a plotter. Uh, she is definitely open to major revisions after she's already completed a draft, which, of course, goes back to your point about it being extra important to have buy-in when you're a part of an intense collaboration. Like, it's easier to take the inefficient route when it's something that only you are working on. Yes. And when you're working with another person, it's also really important to make sure they're not a jerk. You know, yeah. it, that that was one thing that she was talking about. You know, someone comes into that first meeting, that first conversation she's having, and they seem like a raging narcissist. She's not going to work for them. She's not going to do it. You know, you really yeah. do not have to take every job, even though it can really, I say this as a freelancer, yeah. it really can feel like you do have to take every job. Oh, my God. Believe me, I know. It's such a hard lesson to learn when you're freelancing. You know, the whole thing about being independent is that you don't know exactly what you're going to earn or when you'll get paid. But you still have bills to pay on a set schedule. So, you know, getting especially if you're in a lean period, saying no to money is really hard to do. But sometimes it's the right thing to do. You know, as a freelancer, you get to choose and you shouldn't choose to be the subject of the whims of a narcissist or a jerk. But the truth is, there are a lot of nice people who are just not a good fit, or maybe their project doesn't fit into your schedule. Whatever the cause is, it's not just jerks and narcissists. Sometimes the right answer is no, and that's so hard. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like sometimes if I ever wrote an advice book for uh, freelancers and creatives and artists, it would be called Getting to Know instead of <laughs> Getting to Yes. Um, yeah. June... I imagine I was not the only person who really felt your question to Michelle about how many different projects she has mm. going on at once. Maybe it's because, you know, over the last year I was judging a prize and doing this mm. podcast and teaching and writing a book and all this other things. Oh. You know, when you're a freelancer, you got a lot going on at once. Uh, her own strategy is to avoid working on multiple projects on one day and building flexibility into her schedule. But I got to ask what are your strategies? Because even though you're not a freelancer, you do a ton of different jobs at Slate and you have a book to write. Um, so I'm going to ask you about your favorite subject on earth other than dentistry, time <laughs> management. How are you managing your time? Oh, well, short answer is not as well as I would like. So at my day job, 
I feel like I have a good solution to this challenge. I use an app called Dynalist to keep track of all the things I have to get done. I prioritize those things. I make notes of deadlines and meetings and things I need to talk to people about. And that works pretty well. The tricky bit is when you effectively have a second job, which might be if you're a freelancer or you have a side hustle or a creative hobby, or in my case, a book to write. Like clearly this roadblock that I experience is psychological because I could use Dynalist in exactly the same way to keep track of book tasks and deadlines and priorities, but I tend not to. And I think it's because I want to separate my jobby job from my passion job, which means that I kind of need to use slightly different work styles for the two projects. So what I've ended up doing is putting myself in a different physical space when I'm working on my book. So when I'm doing my slate work, I sit at my desk, the desk that I'm at right now, and I use my slate computer, the computer that I'm at right now. And when I'm working on my book, I sit in the living room and I use my own computer. Now, these locations are, you know, approximately 25 steps apart. The computers are incredibly similar, though I haven't put Slack on my personal computer. But I still think those subtle differences do allow me to, like, put myself in a separate headspace and not have the two worlds bleeding into each other too much. Mm. Yeah, the use of physical space to separate, you know, the different parts of your life, even if you're stuck at home because of yeah. the pandemic is is yeah. actually a really powerful psychological tool, I think. Yeah. It's like now I go from my job to my other job. <laughs> exactly. Which is one room to the other room. Speaking of jobs, it sounds like part of what makes Michelle so good at hers is that she knows what it is and she's not going to do things that are outside that purview. She's not ghostwriting memoirs because she wouldn't know how to do that. She's only going to do one big line edit, you know, uh, knowing yourself, what you're actually good at and what your limits are seems to be a really important part of creative work. That's actually something that Fabian Almazan talked about last week, but I wonder for those people listening to this or maybe just starting out, how do you actually get to know yourself well enough to make those choices? Is it hard one experience of making mistakes? Is it a gut feeling? Is it years of therapy? Should you be, you know, reading the memoirs of Marcus Aurelius and studying the Stoics? I mean, what, what do you think, June? So for, in my case, I would say years of experience. You know, if I, um, to refer back to something that we were talking about before, I now know not to say yes to everything because in the past, I did. And I said yes to projects that were just so disruptive and overwhelming and definitely not worth whatever money I earned from them. Um, so in that sense, I learned from bad experiences. But I've also learned from positive experiences. Like I used to be a terrible procrastinator and I would make myself so miserable by putting off things that were not put offable for no good reason. And just getting in there and tackling things a few times, I learned that that makes my life a lot more fun. It makes me a lot happier. Uh, or after working with people that I got along with, I learned that if I don't feel a spark of connection right from the start, it's probably not going to spontaneously appear halfway through a project. And if it doesn't, there's a good chance it will be a massive slog. So like, that's me. But I would love to hear, I wish... In this sense only, I wish that our co-host Karen Han was here today because she has things figured out at a young age in a way that just boggles my mind. Like I was so utterly hopeless in my 20s and my early 30s. It took me a long time to figure out how to get work done in a way that didn't make me miserable. Yeah, me too. So I'm, I just would love to like, I just want to talk to those people who figure it out early how they do it. But Isaac. What about you? You're a Stoics guy, right? How do you yeah, do it? Yeah, I just sit around reading Seneca and then um, <laughs> figuring out yeah. what wisdom there is from that and then applying Fingering it to my, my memento mori coin, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, you visualize the bad mm -hmm. things that are going to happen so that when mm -hmm. they happen, you don't have an emotional response to them. Yeah. That whole thing. Um, yeah. I, I, at least in my case, hard one experience, you know, yeah. I got fired from a bunch of jobs in my early twenties. I, uh, uh, deservedly so <laughs> I, um, and I've worked at a bunch of different kinds of places, you know, as a temp, I worked at a bookstore. I worked in a hotel for three hours before getting fired. I, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I've written for a bunch of different places. I've done a lot of different plays and, and, and for me, it's been hard one experience as well. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a lot of wonderful experiences directing plays in my twenties and a lot of terrible experiences, <laughs> that I learned a lot from. I, I 
think also, actually, I mean, I'm going to go to bat for one of the other things I listed, which is therapy. I actually think uh-huh. that, you know, having a good therapist that you can talk about uh, work stuff, you know, mm-hmm. with um, is really important. And, you know, I, I'm a big fan of therapy. I, I, I think we should encourage people to go to it. I've, I've done it off and on for most of my adult life. And mm-hmm. um, I've learned an awful lot without having to always make those mistakes <laughs> by yeah. being able to, you know, talk it through with someone. I would also say the last thing is, you know, my wife has uh, always been very good at having jobs and very good at interviewing for them. And, you know, we help each other out a lot, actually, when we are having problems in our various work lives, we help each yeah. other strategize. We come from it from different places. I'm a, you know, writer. She works at American Express, uh, but we both started in theater. You know, we both come from a similar background and we both understand each other's problems really well because we've been talking about them for 15 plus years now. And so, you know, we're both, I think, really good at helping each other out when we're having these problems and, and thinking of new, maybe better, not always, but new ways of navigating through them. Uh, and so we're really able to be there for each other in a, in a way that I really value. That's awesome. That's really awesome. First, find the perfect partner. Second, read Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> Third, hardwood experience. Fourth, miserable 20s. This is all our good advice. This is all our good advice. Yeah, there you go. You no longer have to listen to this show again. <laughs> but we would still like you to listen to Working. So please, if you're enjoying this show, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you will never miss an episode. And not to bother you, but just a quick reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like this one or The Waves, Culture Gab Fest, and you will never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Michelle Schusterman for being our guest this week and to the beatific Cameron Drews for producing this show. We'll be back next week for Isaac's Conversation with Hannah Boss and Paul Thoreen, the creators and showrunners of HBO's Somebody Somewhere. Until then, get back to work. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.